Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I have you loud and clear. <laughs> Hello. 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 Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> Science. And that is to say physics. Medicine. Nature. Or space. Time. The brain. Life. The universe. Hello. Welcome to this week's Naked Scientists. I'm Chris Smith. And this time, it's a science Q&A show. You ask the questions and we're supplying the answers. Coming up, why are fridges harder to open again after you've only just closed them? What's the best way to wipe the memory of a smartphone and what might climate change mean for chocolate? Oh no! The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. Now, with me to tackle the questions this week are Duncan Astle, who's a cognitive neuroscientist at Cambridge University, and sitting in front of him is something very interesting. What have you got there, Duncan? It is. Let me describe it to you. So it looks like a tiny sculpture of a brain. It looks like a truffle. It might might look like a truffle or maybe a walnut. Yeah. Um, It's around an inch and a half long, about an inch wide. It weighs quite a bit. I'm going to hand it to the person next to me who's going to hold it. So it looks like a tiny sculpture, but actually it's not. It's a real 3D printed brain. So of that's, what? that's the brain of one of the research fellows in my lab. Is it really that small? <laughs> it's life-size. No, it's not life-size. <laughs> I've made that joke What's to him his or her times. name? This is Edwin's brain. Right. He's um, well endowed then, Edwin, isn't he? Cognitively speaking, at least. He's a smart guy. Now, this is actually, it would need to be about three and a half times larger yeah. for it to be his real brain. Now, it's quite heavy because it's made from a steel and bronze alloy. We took an, a magnetic resonance imaging scan in our department of his brain. We have those from everyone in the lab. And then there's a company that you can send them off to and they will render it for you. And then they will print it for you in different types of substance. And this you're is you're saying you've got this for everyone in the lab. Is this an inclusion criteria to work in your group then? You have to have your brain scanned and then a, and then a 3D model made just to make sure you've got one. It's more of an inclusion criteria that they are willing to be involved in all the research experiments that we do. And as a result, we end up having lots of brain scans for all the lab members. It's interesting that you're saying this, though, because there is a serious side to all this, isn't there? The, the fact that previously to study neuroanatomy, you'd have to get the brain out of something. And now we're in a position where the scans are so good, like that the one that presumably led to the creation of that model, that you can actually get the brain out of something without having to take its brain out. And then you can study these things in front of you without having to harm anything. Yeah, it's it's basically been revolutionary in how we think in, about the brain and how we study it. So this is taken from an image from a three Tesla scanner. So that's the strength of the magnet that's been used. But in Cambridge here, we actually have a seven Tesla scanner. So that's got an exceptionally powerful magnet. And that means that the detail with which you can look at the brain neuroanatomy is getting increasingly sophisticated. Um, So with, for instance, with the seven Tesla, people are even starting to think that you might be able to look at different layers of cells within the brain. Um, It's that sophisticated. 
That's amazing. Thank you, Duncan, for introducing us to that. Now, I'm always worried when I see a falcon tube. These are the kinds of things you pee into when the doctor says, give me a specimen, pee into this. But I'm sure Nadia Radsman, who is a food security and plant scientist specialist from Cambridge University, that's not why you brought in that red top tube. What's in there? No. So these are the seeds of a plant called Medicago truncatula. Medicago? Yes. So it's a model legume that we use in the lab to study nodule formation. And these nodules are formed in the roots, uh, well, on the roots, and they are globular structure. They are formed with the association with soil bacteria. Mm. So the soil bacteria will be housed inside these nodules. Well, the bacteria would fix nitrogen from the air and uh, form ammonium which is available to the plant. And the plants will give carbon as nutrients to the bacteria. So it's a win-win situation. It's, a, it's an exchange. So the, yes. the plants grow these nodules, make a home with food on tap for yes. microorganisms. And the microbes are recruited into these nodules where they bring the biochemistry that says, I can grab nitrogen out of the yes. air and make it available to you as plant, yes. no need for fertiliser. Mm-hmm. Uh, so pretty much like mini factories, like mini nitrogen fertiliser factories mm. for the plants. Why are you studying this? I mean, is your is your vision that if we can work out how one group of plants that we don't want to eat or don't want to eat all the time do mm-hmm. this, could we make plants that we do want to eat a lot more do it too and then we wouldn't need fertiliser? Yes, so the, the lab that I belong to... Um, we want to know how legumes actually form these nodules. And if we know the exact process, this is how this is being done, then we could potentially transfer it to something like wheat. And that would be important because at the moment yes. we're dumping enormous amounts of fertilisers mm-hmm. onto fields to feed a burgeoning world population. Exactly. That, that if we didn't have fertiliser, there's no way the world could feed itself. I mean, it's yeah. fair to say that, isn't it? Yeah. And so this is something that is interesting too. So... Legumes can form these nodules and fix nitrogen at ambient temperature. But if we were to produce nitrogen fertilizers, we need to have high temperature and high pressure. So that would cause a lot of fossil fuels to do that. Yeah, so it's got a big carbon footprint, hasn't it? Thanks, Nadia. So that's uh, you can appreciate now where the food security angle comes in. Now, next to Nadia is program regular tech expert, Expert, I suppose you could say, and angel investor Peter Cowley. Now, he always brings in fancy gadgets, and he refused to tell us what the fancy gadget he was going to reveal is when he said, I'm going to bring in something that's going to wow you out. So, what, what have you got? Yeah, well, I've got it in front of me. I better describe it first. I've often taken you along to dinner parties and asked people what it is. So you can see it in the studio. It's about a cubic centimetre. It's about one and a half centimetres long by about 75 millimetres. Um, 7.5 millimetres by 5 millimetres and it's made, it's a little piece of ceramic it's got about 100 ceramic pyramids inside it this isn't helping at all, is it? Not really. It looks like it's got burnt, which is a good reason. <laughs> now, you've got to cast your mind back to, and there won't be many listeners who can remember this, but the V1 bombs in the Second World War, which used to fly over as stop, the sound went off and they would crash, and there were many, many casualties because of that. That was a pulse jet engine. So it was basically a, like an organ tube where it was igniting and the gases they expelled pulled the next fuel in, which ignited and so on. And that was running at yeah. about 40 or 50 hertz. This is ultrasonic, apparently. So this is running at 30 kilohertz. And what's what's in there? Is that like, are you saying that's a mini rocket engine? Exactly, yes. So its inventor is a guy called Bill Den in Great Shelford, just south of Cambridge, about five miles from Cambridge. And he does it in his shed. And I nearly invested in it in 2012. His main problem, I've got actually the final report here in front of me, was igniting it. But I've been in that shed more than once where he has ignited it. 
complicated method. So what do you, you squirt in there fuel? You squirt and, in fuel and, and air. air. And what happened, and his, his calculations are that it's the equivalent of a two-litre car engine, but double the efficiency. Something that side. It's just mind-boggling. how do you extract the energy? It's just the gas stream emerging at extremely high speed. It's a jet engine. engine. Exactly. Goodness. And and has it gone anywhere? I don't think so. (laughs) I don't think it's got to the... I checked the company's house and the company's dormant at the moment. That's a shame. So the idea behind it, which the application is the interesting thing, is things like putting the jet engine on the trailing edge of an aircraft wing. So you haven't got yeah. that thing. So it's just basically a line of these. I've got a longer one here, which is probably the equivalent of a six-litre petrol engine, which is about three centimetres long. The fluid dynamics possibly doesn't work because <laughs> the molecule size, if you think you've got fuel and air molecules are a certain size, how can you get those down to that size? But anyway, I've seen it producing thrust. It ignited it rather clumsily, but it was, it was taking, I think, propane gas in and generating thrust, which you could see. So that's what I brought in because it's just amazing. But we had certain people like Herman Hauser, who a name you might know from Cambridge, who invested in it. So it wasn't just... Well, but I get didn't. Herman on and ask, yeah, ask, ask him how, what it, how went. far it went yeah, on. It went, yeah. I mean, Duncan's impressed. It's basically like a, a tiny Lego. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it it's is. a good way exactly, of putting it. Yeah. It's, it's very, very small. To think that could do a two-liter engine. We ought to tweet a photograph amazing. of it, actually. So. We, we should do. Thank you for yeah. bringing it in, Peter. That's <laughs> wonderful welcome. to see. Well, sitting next to me is Livia Souza. Now, she's a civil engineer. She's also a chemist by original training. And she's part of a group at the University of Cambridge who are developing self-healing concrete. She sounds extraordinary. Why do we need self-healing concrete and how does this work? Yeah, we need it because, well, there is a lot of CO2 emissions associated with the repair and maintenance of the concrete structures that we have nowadays. So the idea is when there is a crack in concrete, what if the crack can repair itself without any external intervention? And to do so, what we do is... Oh, this is where your show and tell comes in. You've got what looks like a blood sample in front of you. Earth <laughs> yeah, is because it's a big, red. <laughs> a big pot of something. What on earth is in that pot? It so looks like jelly. Here are microcapsules. They are in liquid because they have this very interesting property that when they are wet, they are very ductile. They are very um, soft and rubbery. And when they are dry, they are very brittle. So we use this as a property for we can mix these microcapsules with um, concrete very easily and they are very rubbery when this mixed. Is, this is when you're making the concrete, when it's liquid. So you mix some of that in yes. with the cement at the yeah, time of, yeah. of making the concrete. Yeah. And it's worth mentioning that they are very tiny. While these ones are a bit larger, so you can um, see them basically. But the ones that we are actually producing in the lab are very, very tiny. 100 microns, 200 microns of size. So that's a tenth of a millimetre to a fifth of a millimetre. Very, very tiny, these capsules. Very, very tiny. What's in the capsules, though? What's the chemistry here? So the idea is we mix them with concrete, and then when there is this, the concrete settles and dry, and when there is a crack in concrete, the crack opens the capsule and releases the healing agent. And what's in the he- what's the healing agent? And what's this in healing there? agent can be a polymeric material like um, epoxy, for instance, or it could be a mineral such as sodium silicate or colloidal silica that can um, form a healing product or interestingly it can be bacteria the thing is this is going to be great for concrete we're laying now but obviously for the buildings that are already up there not so good or can you can you inject this into already injured concrete and get it to heal that 
The, the technology is so recent and so interesting that we are thinking about ways of using it. And one way is to repair structures that are already existing. A good example, it's a case in the Netherlands where it was a massive parking lot and they had infiltration and that it was damaging the whole structure because of cracks. So what they decided to do is to spray this uh, self-healing technology using bacteria over the whole structure and it would repair itself and hopefully it could repair in the future autonomously as well. Yeah, it could be bad if you've got a really ugly housing estate, though, that you'd quite like to fall down. That and you come along bad. with your self-healing concrete. It could that mean it's a monstrosity for a lot longer than we'd like, <laughs> couldn't it? But never mind. There's, there's, every cloud has a silver lining, I suppose, and sometimes not. Livia, thanks very much. So that's our panel for this week. Meanwhile... We have got, before we dive into the questions, a little guess who item. Now, we do this whenever we have one of our Q&A programmes. We give you a series of clues over the hour that will lead you, hopefully, to be able to identify the identity of our mystery thing or creature. What, we're asking you, makes this sound? Hmm, intriguing. Don't worry if you didn't get it on the first play. We will repeat that later in the show. I'm going to make a lame joke. Duncan, because the first question's coming your way, and actually it's one I'm sure we've had before. It's about deja vu. Paul wants to know, why do people get deja vu? I just had to stop my groan. Grimace, your grimace, grimace, grimace. Um, who knows what deja vu means? Who's good at French? Already seen. That sense of familiarity, but in the absence of an explicit memory of something. So as you can imagine, there are lots of different theories as to why we experience deja vu. I'm going to give you my favourite one because I think it's probably the most plausible one. And that is, is that déjà vu is the moment when you become consciously aware of a discrepancy between two different memory signals that come from two different memory systems. Um, and it's sort of a signal um, about what you think you've experienced before and the signal about what you've actually experienced before. So there are actually multiple different memory systems that we use all the time. They have slightly different underlying neurobiological implementations. Some of them are really to do with learning about and remembering episodes, so facts that have happened. Others are more to do with learning about the general principles of the world around us. For instance, I knew the way here, but I couldn't remember the first time that I'd been here. Now, you can imagine the situation where these two systems give contrary um, indications. So you, you get a very strong feeling of familiarity, but in the absence of an explicit memory. And the one theory of déjà vu is it's the moment when you consciously realise that you're getting these two conflicting signals about one particular experience. What tends to make it happen? No one knows for sure. For instance, when people are more sleepy, they tend to be more I going to say, because I know I've had this, and it's happened when I've been jet-lagged. It tends to happen to me when I'm really tired or when I've done a night shift at the hospital or something. I get it then. Is that is that common? It is. When studies try and look at it experimentally, they tr one of the ways that they try and induce it is by sleep-depriving people. And is that just because you're, one of the memory circuits you allude to is failing to imprint a memory properly and another one thinks it has or, or one of them thinks it's put something into long-term memory and, other, and it actually hasn't and so there is this disparity arising. Is, is, is it a memory failure or is it just spurious signals being generated by a tired brain? I suspect it's that when you're really tired you're less able to disentangle these two sources of information and that's why you get this kind of moment of conflict. Thank you, Duncan, for making me feel better that I'm not, not so abnormal. Now, Peter, Golf V Swag, and that's the name they go by on our forum, that's nakedscientist.com forward slash forum, says, what is the right way to wipe a smartphone? And this is becoming increasingly important, isn't it? Because there are so many phones that 
we, we keep on rinsing and repeating, basically. Get a new contract, get a new phone. You've got this phone you have been using. It's replete with all of your personal data and information and that kind of thing. You might want to hand that on to your kids or onto a third party or recycle it or something. How do you make sure you're not hemorrhaging personal information when you don't? And even more so, it allows the phones to be reused in other parts of the world so they can be sort of transferred as the, uh, in certainly developing countries, Global South, people are using smarter and smarter phones, which is mm. enabling all kinds of other things. But first of all, you've got to understand there's quite a big difference between Android and iOS. So iOS is the Apple operating system. Android has about 75% of the market in the world and, and iOS most of the rest apart from a few Windows phones, except in the UK actually where they're about 50-50 because they have different levels of security built in anyway. So first of all, there is a function in all of them to delete or wipe the whole of the contents. But some research was done in Cambridge, actually, uh, I think last year, which took a phone, Android phones, and found that you could get data off it again. And this is because of something called leveling, wear leveling of the flash memory, where a block of memory is actually not used any longer because it might get worn out. Um, and so to avoid that, I think there are two possibilities, both which should be used, well, for, for in different cases. One, you can, if you encrypt it first, the phone, and an iOS phone is encrypted anyway using hardware, but it's an Android phone, you encrypt it first, then you wipe it, you will almost certainly have removed, there'll be no way of getting at any data at all, first point. Um, with iOS, I say there's a piece of hardware in there and has been for the last nine years or so. Of course, the final, which doesn't allow any recycling, is just to get a sledgehammer. That works quite well, doesn't it? If you just well, I suspect it, it probably works well, but you've still got to break the chip <laughs> involved. And so if a crime was involved, which might involve murder, and it's not completely broken, then it could be cracked you again. You could still read that. Livia? How do you encrypt the phone? The encryption is a software encryption on Android, which means there's a switch inside it. So if you go into the settings, you'll find encrypt. The problem about encrypting is that the decrypt process can take time, mm-hmm. which is why on iOS, it's done in hardware. It's done as the data is coming out of the memory chip in hardware, and therefore it's done the whole time. So uh, information on an iOS device, an Apple device, is always, always encrypted. So you'd actually have to force the encryption. Whether there's a knock-on effect on an Android device with encrypted because of the speed of response, I don't know, because I, I use Apple. Naked Genetics is back. You're a mutant. I strongly disagree. It's a labor of love, I'm sure. He would have had his mind blown. We have brand new episodes coming each month, starting 14th of August with Mendel's Trick, a trip back through time to the garden where it all began. He is the person whose ideas led to the founding of the science of genetics. The story of how one man took 30 years to become the figurehead for a brand new type of science. Find us on nakedscientist.com slash genetics or search for Naked Genetics wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, why are some fridges harder to open again once you've just closed them? Here's the next part of our Guess Who game for you at home and also our guests here in the studio. Earlier, we heard that the thing we're asking you to identify makes this noise. Now, clue two is that these things have been known to swallow stones and scientists think that doing this enables them to work a bit like a scuba diver's weight belt. They can stay deep under the surface even when their lungs are full of air. Any idea? If not, don't worry. More clues are coming up. To plants now. Now, Nadia, we got asked by Agassia, what plants can we grow in space? So are we growing plants in space? Mm -hmm. Why might we even want to grow plants in space, apart from possibly rocket, I suppose you could say? (laughs) Boom, and uh, and and what adaptations might be necessary to be made to make plants grow better in space? Right. So, what kind of plants? I'm guessing 
small enough plants to fit in the growth chamber that uh, we currently have in the ISS, the International Space Station. So there is this uh, small cabinet size chamber that were, that astronauts can grow plants in. So a couple of plants that had been grown before in space, uh, lettuce, cabbage, um, Chinese cabbage, and also the model plant that we usually use in the lab called Arabidopsis thaliana. So it's a very small plant. A couple of these plants were grown for the astronaut consumption. So, for example, I think it was Chinese cabbage that they grew in, um, in ISS and then they actually had a try. I'm not sure. <laughs> I am not <laughs> sure about that. But a lot of experiments, uh, plant science experiments using Arabidopsis are also being done in the ISS. So it's interesting that uh, they were comparing how plants grow in space and on Earth. Because, of course, there's microgravity in space. Exactly. These plants are growing in free yes. fall, aren't they? Yeah. So is it true to say that plants actually depend on gravity in order to know what's uh, up and what's down? Yeah. And so, therefore, in the absence of, of a strong gravity signal, yep. because they're in free fall, mm-hmm. they're not going to have that. So do they grow all wrong? So they don't exactly grow wrong. They do grow slower than the ones on Earth. And on Earth, so how plants detect where is the direction of gravity is that at the very end of the root tip, there are a group of cells. um, And these cells would actually um, detect where gravity is. So in microgravity in space these cells, well, couldn't detect any where's the direction of gravity anymore. Mm. So they would, lo- they would use light. So oh, that's the dominant signal, is it? Yes. So instead they just obey where it's brightest and exactly. grow towards that. Yeah, so the roots will grow away from the light and the shoots will grow towards the light. And it's interesting when they had a lot of light, when plants couldn't detect which direction that the lights are coming from, Pretty much the roots and the shoots don't have any preference anymore. So the answer is we're growing plants in space to see how they grow, but it, but presumably because we're going to need them for food, because yes, plants exactly. are our nature's solar panel. Mm-hmm. They get the energy from the sun, they turn it into chemical energy we can eat. So we yes. need, we, we're going to need plants in space if we're going to make space journeys. Yep. I mean, that's bottom line, isn't it? Yep. Now, Olivia, we don't want to leave you out of the equation. It's your turn now because we've got this question for you from Steph, who says... Is climate change having an impact on how we build buildings? Climate change has been in the news a lot, and we've had heat waves, unprecedented temperatures, 48.9, I think they recorded in, in France at peak this summer. Wow, you know, when we were building buildings originally, we didn't build them with that in mind. So is this affecting how we build now? Or is it going to affect how we're going to build in future? It is affecting how we, uh, we're planning our cities and how we are building our buildings, basically. The main thing to keep in mind is CO2 emissions. When we are talking about this conversation, we are talking about how do we minimize CO2 emissions on, on, on our buildings, basically. For that, concrete can be very damaging. So, it's only like 20% of the world's CO2 emissions is, is just making concrete, I think, isn't it? It's a very large number. I think it's around 7-10%, but, but that's still... It's still a big number. It's still quite big. I mean, obviously big. you get a bit of payback because the concrete takes down some carbon dioxide from the atmosphere when it goes off, doesn't it, and turns back into a solid... But, but even so, you've still got to bake this mineral at very high temperature to make the, the I concrete. I think we have back. a massive payback in terms of infrastructure for people that is provided with concrete. That's amazing. Mm. 
but we are paying a price for it. Because mm. another conversation on that, when we're talking about reducing the use of concrete for our buildings, so we could be using timber, for instance, or bio-based materials in general. Mm. But when we are talking about changing the technology, we are talking about developed countries. Mm. What if when we're talking about developing countries, how is this moving forward? Duncan? In 20 years' time, do you still think that we'll be using concrete as we currently use it? Or is your vision that we'll have come up with some, not timber, but some alternative substance that why, we can... Why not timber? I mean, timber's pretty good as a material, isn't it? I mean, it's carbon neutral, potentially. And it's very long-lived and it's very strong. What's not to like? I'm sure it's great for certain kinds of structures, but I'm guessing there are lots of structures that we might want to build, like airports, for example, in the future, for which it might be difficult to make it out of timber. Um, you know, you can pour concrete, you can set it, you can do all sorts of things to it. Well, you wouldn't build a nuclear bunker out of probably paper. I, I no. grant you that. But <laughs> you probably no. would need concrete for that. But <laughs> wood's a pretty good material. I mean, surely that's going to be one of the things that's factoring into the equation more and more with... More and more. We are thinking about straws. We are thinking about um, hempcrete, concrete with hemp, hemp bits on it. The bits you can't smoke. <laughs> <laughs> can set fire on the house. Um, Nadia. Referring back to the self-healing concrete, can we use it as a building material? That's the idea. The buildings that we are making right now is to make it as resilient as possible. So for the future, they need very little repair and maintenance. Oh, what you're and saying is rather than have to make more cement and more CO2 carbon footprint in the future, make, one make the building, make it once and make it last longer. Yes. I, I get it. And, and also and make it repair itself into the bargain. Yeah. yeah. And to reply to your question, Duncan, um, a challenge, because to think about new materials replacing concrete, uh, we are also talking about um, changes in policies, isn't it? And the UK may think about it, but other countries may be not thinking about it. And concrete is still quite cheap to produce. Environmentally, it's not so much, but cost is very good. Yeah. Thanks very much. Now, John has joined us on the telephone. Hello, John. Hi. What's your question? I'd like to know what the temperature on the moon in the direct sunlight is, please, and also in the when it's not in sunlight, when it's in the dark. Thank you, John. Well, the answer to this, we know this very well because, of course, it's been measured directly by NASA. We heard a couple of weeks ago all about the moon landings and things when we celebrated the 50th anniversary of the first moon landing. The answer is that it matters whether you're in the sunlight or not in the sunlight because the energy reaching the Earth comes in the form of radiation from the sun and that includes light we can see and light we can't see, such as ultraviolet radiation. That energy hitting a surface like the moon's surface or an astronaut's spacesuit is enough to warm it up to more than 120 degrees. So the, the lit surface of the moon is at about 120 to 130 degrees C. That's why the astronauts needed such fancy spacesuits to keep their body temperature correct and reflect off a lot of that radiation. But at the same time, if you go out of the illuminated part of the moon, you're not having that heat hitting you anymore and the temperature plummets. And at night time on the moon, because the moon isn't always permanently illuminated, the nighttime temperature on the moon is about minus 170 degrees, or even colder in some places. And so that's why people are interested in the water that's on the moon, for example, in some of these deep, dark recesses, because that's actually part and parcel of the material that was laid down when the moon was formed 
probably through a huge collision about five and a half billion years ago, um, about five billion years ago, 4.57 billion years ago, we think, when something clobbered the Earth and formed a fusion of two planets and our moon. And so that material can tell us a lot about what, what the Earth was made of, what that other planet was made of, and therefore what the moon's also made of. But yes, very, very cold, minus 170 degrees C, so certainly a chilly one. The Naked Scientists podcast is produced in association with Spitfire, cost-effective voice, internet and IP engineering services for UK businesses. Find out how Spitfire can empower your company at spitfire.co.uk. Music in the programme is sponsored by Epidemic Sound, perfect music for audio and video productions. We're answering the science questions you've been sending in to us this week and with me to help me do that are neuroscientist Duncan Astle, angel investor and tech guru Peter Cowley, plant scientist and food security specialist Nadia Radsman and engineer Livia Souza. It's time for our quiz. Now this is where we put our panel to the test a little bit more. We have a quiz for them. Now Peter and Nadia you're going to be team one and Duncan and Livia you're on team two. Now, the honour that you are competing for is to be the Naked Scientist's big brain of the week, Okay, Prize beyond price. So first round, Peter and Nadia. Here we go. This is called Sci-Fact or Sci-Fiction, and we're going under the sea for you. Octopuses have eight hearts, one that powers each tentacle. Is that science fact or science fiction? What do you think? More like to know than me. I am not sure. (laughs) I I would, would, I'm, I'm sort of towards no. If, if I would say, yeah. Uh, okay, we disagree then. Yeah, we disagree <laughs> that. Where's that coin that we can toss? <laughs> no, you know more about you. this than I do. What are you going to go for? You're going to go for the, the science fact? Nadia's going to answer. It, too many hearts on one organism, I would think. So you think science fiction? It is indeed science fiction. They do actually, though, have three hearts. Per leg. Two of the hearts. No, not per leg, Peter. No. <laughs> that would be 18. Uh, no, 18, no, 24, 24 hearts. Yes. <laughs> testing my maths here. Two of the hearts actually move blood through the animal's gills. The third one keeps the organs perfused. And the interesting thing is that that third organ-perfusing heart actually stops beating when the animal swims, which is why they tend to slink around and crawl about, because it's more efficient in terms of their circulatory demands. Mm-hmm. So... Plus one to you two. Right, Duncan and Livia, you're up next. Now, American explorer Victor Vescovo, during his descent to the bottom of the Mariana Trench, deepest dive, found what? Was it A, a species of 12-eyed fish, which has subsequently been named Dodecamoculus Pisces, a cannonball, which was fired from a military naval vessel, which is thought to have participated in the Battle of the Java Sea, or a tin of spam, or all of the above? Uh, naval history is not really my thing. So the cannonball seems plausible, but... I feel like saying all of the above yeah. just to cover all the options. I, I think I can imagine all of the above is true. <laughs> Going all of the above, is yeah. that uh, true or is it false? Well, I'm afraid to say... Oh. Uh, no, no, it's not true. Um, the fish we made up, um, the cannonball, no idea. There might be one of those down there, but he certainly didn't find it. He found a tin of Spam. At five kilometres down on the slope on the way down into the Mariana Trench, even deeper down, he did find plastic bags, some sweet wrappers and some other angular metal objects, um, which we'll assume were human-made, but no 12-eyed fish or cannibals, I'm afraid, Duncan and Olivia. So no, you, no, no points for you so far. Right, on to round two. You're in the lead, Peter and Nadia. Which is taller, the Empire State Building in New York or the Shard in London? So the Empire State Building is about 1,000 feet, and I think mm-hmm. the Shard's slightly higher. 
but I, my guess is it's probably about 10 to, 10 to 30 metres higher. Have you? Oh, so what are you I'll going go for? with your answer. The shard. Yeah. I, I would say the shard. the shard, yes. And the answer is... <laughs> no. <laughs> no, actually, it, it is New York has clinched it. The Empire State Building's 381 metres. The shard oh, is no. 310. That's so including the mast on the top, though, isn't it? Well, I didn't say that. <laughs> no, I just okay. said, <laughs> Sorry, I'm not. <laughs> you're just, now you're getting desperate, Peter. <laughs> yeah. uh, okay, so zero for that round. Peter's still on one. So, Duncan and Livy, your chance to claw back the... The, the victory which has the faster acceleration not uh, to 60 that's 100 kilometers an hour and people on uh, new money a cheetah or a ford fiesta st that's a sports turbo ford fiesta so what can accelerate not to 60 the fastest a cheetah or a ford fiesta st I used to have a Ford Fiesta. Was it, it an ST, though, Yeah, it wasn't an ST. <laughs> see, that's the difference, you see. I had a Ford Fiesta, it definitely was an ST. Um, <laughs> I know cheetahs are really quick. Yeah, I would guess cheetahs. I like 0 to 60, but 60 is quite fast for a cheetah to go. Cheetah. Yeah, we're going to go cheetah. And the answer <laughs> is... Yeah, plus one, so you're level pegging Yay! now. Well done. Uh, the Cheetah is is faster by far, actually. The Ford Fiesta ST, the 2012 to 2017 model, is quoted at doing 0 to 60 in 6.7 seconds. The Cheetah achieves that in three. Wow. Yeah. wow. You think about it, because it's elastic energy in tendons and muscles. It's an explosive burst of speed. The acceleration, the rate of, of speed change is very, very fast, much faster than the car. What the Cheetah can't do is to actually keep it up for any duration. It can only mm. do that for a matter of seconds. The Ford Fiesta hopefully manages a little bit better than that. Hopefully. Level pegging on round three. So it's all on this one, otherwise we'll be able to tiebreaker. Back to you, Peter and uh, Nadia. Now, this round is called The Shoes on the Other Foot, because basically we ask you a question that the other team are experts on, and uh, they get to laugh when you get it wrong. But don't worry, the shoe will be on the other foot once we get to the second part and it's their turn Peter and Nadia a brainy neuroscience question for you so Duncan, Livia no chipping in here the human brain accounts for 2% of your body weight so to the nearest 10% how much energy does it use as a percentage of the total energy in the body so how much energy how much it, energy yes so how much energy does the body use at rest it's probably 300 watts or something I know 400 that, watts I know that the brain requires a lot of glucose yes um and oxygen. Yes. So when you oxygen deprived, uh, that's yeah. why you can get brain damage. So it's the nearest ten percent, isn't it, Chris? I just need a number in percentage terms. I'll give you plus or minus ten percent okay. uh, of how much of your total energy burn in a day, your brain, which makes up two percent of your body weight, uses. Thirty, twenty. It's not fifty. I don't think is it. I uh, think uh, it is. Gonna no, push no, you. Don't uh, cheat. Uh, uh, <laughs> um, Stop googling. Th- <laughs> 30, slightly more, probably. Yeah, 40. Four, four, 40, I would say. Yeah, we're going 40. Okay. Unfortunately, no, it's about 20%. About 20% yeah. of your cardiac output goes okay. to your brain, yeah, and your and your mm. cardiac output, yeah. the amount so of blood your heart million. pumps, yeah. is delivering oxygen, and therefore that's a good index for how much uh, of your metabolism a certain tissue accounts for. Mm. And the brain is your most metabolically hungry organ, so about 20% of the calories you burn in a day will go up there uh, in, in many people's cases. If your brain's the size of the one that Duncan has in front of him, um, the, the model, then maybe not. But yes, a, a good four to 500 mm. calories a day in, a, in an adult. Yep. So no points for that. Okay, if you get this one wrong, it's a tiebreaker still. If you get this one right, you can clinch it, Duncan and Olivia. This is tech yes or tech no. Mm. In other words, does it exist or not? Peter, you have to keep quiet. Mm. Um, does this exist? A talking and listening toilet? I think that's prob- that probably exists. If not, then we should make one. It sounds like a great idea. <laughs> I just came back from Japan. It sounds like a great idea. Yes. yes. We're going to say that that exists. <laughs> 
Yeah. <laughs> yep, this, this has been showcased at the Consumer Electronics Conference. Apparently you can converse with the Toilet Virus Smart Assistant while you're doing whatever comes naturally to you on, on the toilet. <laughs> Peter. The question is, what is it listening to apart from your voice? Well, it, I, doing that, some medical the diagnosis, mind, the is mind it, based boggled. on... <laughs> I tell you what, though, I've just come back from Western Australia where a lab there are working on a smart loo. And the idea is that where we used to talk about farm to fork, where you look at the, the, the food cycle of what comes off the farm and goes down your throat, now we're talking about paddock to porcelain, and they're going to build a smart toilet which will analyse what you dump into it. And uh, that puts a whole new spin, as I put it to them, of logging onto the internet, doesn't it? Because this thing's going to be online and it's going to track exactly what, what you put down the loo, and therefore it can inform your smart fridge in terms of how to manipulate your diet to improve your overall health. So, we have a winner. Give her yourselves a round of applause. Duncan and Olivia, you are this week's Naked Scientist Big Brain of the Week Award winners. Well done. Your score of two out of the three. You are our losers this week, Peter and Nadia. So, don't let that bother you. Now, since we've got you here, Peter, and you're our techie person, I was really intrigued when I looked at the pictures in the newspaper recently of Frankie Zapata, who flew across the channel on this hoverboard. I mean, this was the stuff of, you know, back to the future in 1985. It was just amazing. He flew across the channel on a hoverboard. How on earth did he do that? Yeah, I don't, were you on the programme uh, back at the end of 2017 where we talked about the Richard Browning device from Gravity Industry? I don't know if you interviewed me he, or not. He had rockets on his hands, hands didn't and he? feet. So he was doing the same sort of thing. In fact, I think using the same gas turbines, actually, which are about a foot or so long and uh, developed 22 kilograms of thrust with about the same fuel consumption. So he must be pretty disappointed that he's not on the news now because that device was quite difficult to control. If you, if you saw the video a couple of years mm. ago, go. This one is effectively the same gas turbines, I believe, looking at the photographs, just sitting on something that his, his, his feet are on. Now, the big disadvantage on your hands are the exhaust gas is about 500 degrees centigrade, so you don't really want to get it too close to your legs. To, yeah. I've got shorts on at the moment. Can you imagine that? So the concept is basically the same as it was some time ago, but he has managed to get it working properly. Now, the, the actual flight time is about the same. I don't know if you noticed, but Frankie had to stop halfway, land on a ship, refuel and take off again and the reason he failed the week before or whenever it was because he missed the ship and landed in the water oh. so this time he actually managed to re- refuel go on and land then on the cliffs of Dover. So how's it worked then he's, he's got a hoverboard which has got the engines the jet engines gas turbines strapped onto it where's the fuel then is so that, the fuel's is he in carrying backpack, that? so he's right. carrying about 20 odd kilos of fuel which is earned paraffin so it's effectively gas oh my goodness uh, that's quite heavy fuel. so if he lands in the sea he's well, he he, he, no, he will have landed. Well, I'm not sure about that, but he will have landed with it empty because he was trying to refuel at that point. Yeah, you're right. You must but if you crash into the sea, you, then you, 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 you need quite a to have weight. A, you need some buoyancy. I don't know. But anyway, he's still alive. Wow. His wife was in tears, if you noticed, on the, on the news surprised. clip. So, but, a... but the important thing is it, it must have some sort of self-stabilising thing. So if you see him flying through the air, it's actually, and he was going up to 110 miles an hour, 180 kil- kilometres per hour, and he was about this sort of angle, so about 45 Le- degrees. Leaning forward leaning into, the, well into forward. the wind. So it must take quite a lot of controlling that. Well, he, has he, he, he got a trigger or something? He has, uh, a, has a trigger for control of power, I think, yeah. on the hand. But he said the core strength, his own core strength was the most important thing to control himself because any wind gusts, he's having to protect that, unlike the Richard Browning one, where he could just move his hands and legs around the place. So mm. he, he would have more control over it than the hoverboard. I think you're doing a hundred, pl- over a yes. hundred kilometres. Ma- well, over a hundred, yeah, miles hour. an hour, exactly. And if you hit the water doing that, that's that's yeah, you would devastating. Have to, yeah, you'd have to rotate if he was going to go head first into it. But, you, you know, these... 
what's it called, wingsuiting. Have you seen the videos on wingsuiting going through little holes in rocks? Yeah. There are people who are actually quite close to not minding if they die, I suspect. But this guy, you know, he's, he's achieved something quite special. It is amazing. One wonders whether this will become de rigueur in future. You know, this is this is going to become very much not. Well, yeah, the mili- apparently fiction, the reason the military are not that interested in it because it's too noisy and it takes a lot of training. I'm not surprised. <laughs> like, a lot of dead soldiers potentially <laughs> getting it wrong. They would, your enemy would hear you coming. Wouldn't yes, you? Peter. Thanks very much. Quick reminder of our guess who that's going on during the program. So far, we told you that these things make this sound. We learned that they've been known to swallow stones, a bit like a scuba diver's weight belt that lets them stay underwater even when their lungs are full of air. And your third clue is these are social creatures and they often stay in groups called congregations. On Twitter, Ed Wilson says, is this a porcupine? The answer is no, it's not a porcupine, Ed. Duncan's doing... What are you doing with your hands over there? Maybe some sort of crustacean. Are you going crabs? To start with, I thought, it's those tardigrades on the moon. It seems to me unlikely that they would eat stones to weigh themselves down also they're very tiny mm. um, it's not it's not creatures living on the moon and uh, it's not a crustacean either keep guessing everybody don't worry if you don't know yet more clues are coming up back to the question so now we mentioned this at the beginning nadia and it's very important this um this question's coming from james what might climate change mean for chocolate we heard about climate change and buildings of the future but mm-hmm. chocolate and where does climate come in with chocolate? Right. So climate change affects uh, rainfall and temperature and then the occurrences of a drought and flooding. So these environmental changes would affect plant productivity. And in terms of cocoa trees, this would affect the fruit production. And since the seeds are the ones that we use for chocolate, this would affect chocolate production too. So if we look at the major producers of cocoa, they have tropical climate. So changes in rainfall and temperature would affect food production. Sadly, that would reduce chocolate production too. But will not some bits of the world's surface become more amenable to growing Mm -hmm. chocolate? So although some areas won't be so good, and Brazil could be in trouble as a big producer, bits of Africa could be in trouble, but but could other, other areas become much more propitious for a cacao plant and then before we know it they become the the chocolate mecca i'm not so sure about that because with climate change you also would get a boom of pests and pathogens at different parts of the world too so Mm. that would also affect the yield of uh, cocoa trees and the other thing that we need to consider is if we look at the farmers that are growing these trees most of them are small-scale farmers they really need to have high productivity of these trees mm. in order uh, to sustain their livelihood. So the bottom line, are we worried about chocolate and climate change? We should be, I think. So yeah. good time to buy chocolate cocoa futures then. Price or, is going to rocket, is that what you're saying? Or we can do something about it, do a lot more studies on how to prevent this from happening and we could also reduce our greenhouse gas emission. I'm married to a lady who will help you with those studies. Into right. the, the she she loves chocolate, so that would be great. <laughs> Thank you very much, Nadia. Now, Livia, this is part of an interesting debate that people have been having on our forum, which is why are fridges so much harder to open again when you have opened them, got something out, forgot what actually you should have got out at the same time, and you go back to open it and they can't get the blinking door open? Why is that? Interesting debate. Um, so the idea is 
the fridge is closed as a, a container containing cold air inside of it, isn't it? So you open the door and let's say it's summer outside and all the hot air is going in and the cold air is coming out. And then when you close the door, what happens is this hot air that it was when in, it starts to cool down. And then when it, it happens, it decreases the pressure. And then you have a tiny vacuum. And takes a while for this to be able to, um, for you to be strong enough to pull it. Ah, so it's the air that goes in that's warmer and therefore at a higher volume because it's warmer. Yeah. Hitting the cold surface inside the fridge and shrinking. So yep. the pressure inside the fridge drops. Yep. Presumably then, if you kept on opening and closing the door, as the temperature went up inside the fridge, that, yes. that effect would go away. And also yes. if you had a fridge that wasn't on, it should be much easier to open. It, for sure, for sure. Is that yes. true? Because I haven't, I haven't tested that. That would be the scientific way to approach this, <laughs> way, to actually do the experiment and see if it, a warm fridge. Duncan? I can confirm that warm fridges can be opened fine. You've um, done the experiment. Well, we, when, we moved, when I moved house, there was this bizarre situation. We had multiple fridges and we just used them like cupboards. And they were totally easy to open. There was no issue there. Super duper. Now, Duncan, while you're there, I she got um, quite an interesting question that you, you can actually help us with here. Sazar on our forum says, what sort of culling of visual information does the brain do? And what is, what is the nuance of that question? What is he actually getting at? I think what he's getting at there is that the visual world outside of us, in front of us, is incredibly rich. And there's an information processing capacity problem and there's a couple of ways in which the information is simplified as it moves through the system so i'm just going to tell you about two of them so the first one is very early on so in our retinas the layer at the back of the eyes has lots of um, photosensitive receptors but they're very densely packed around um, a region of the center called the fovea and the fovea is only big enough to pick up your thumbnail at arm's length. If everyone sticks their arms out, then you'll get a sense that it's actually very small. And so what your eye is doing is it's moving around the environment very quickly in special type of eye movements called saccades, and it's updating the information as it goes. And so actually much of what you perceive is actually slightly out of date from the last time that you made a saccade to that location. So there's lots of information that the brain's just filling in the gaps really from the last time around. But and then when it arrives at the brain, it's then culled again. Um, and the reason that we do that is because it's actually much more strategic to focus all of the resources on the information that's most relevant to the task at hand. So there's a really nice experiment that someone did where they had participants watch a video of people playing football. And the task for the participants was to count how many times the ball touches someone's foot. And whilst they're watching this and they're watching very closely and attending very closely to the ball and the foot, on the video, someone comes on in a gorilla costume and runs around the pitch and runs up to the camera. And it turns out that actually very few participants are aware of ever having seen the gorilla. And that's because what their brain essentially is doing is, is biasing the allocation of resources so heavily to the task at hand, which is the balls and the feet, that it's, it's screening out what it considers to be irrelevant information, in this case, the gorilla. So there's lots of culling that goes on. Peter? Yeah, can I just ask how quickly it's rebuilding this image if it's wandering around? Are you talking about milliseconds or tens of milliseconds? What happens if a child jumps into the road, say? Could you have missed it because at some point your brain was actually looking over there, your eyes looking over there? Yeah, so, for instance, yeah, one of the reasons why you shouldn't use your mobile phone whilst driving is because, of course, you're devoting your resources elsewhere. Um, 
so there's what we call top-down and bottom-up attention. So if there's something that's relevant, like the task the participants were given, then you use top-down um, uh, systems within the brain to drive attention towards the location. But you can also get bottom-up attention. So if something very salient or surprising happens, then attention can immediately be captured to that location. And there's a dynamic interplay between those two um, drivers. Now you've had a chance to think about this for a little bit longer, team. Any more suggestions on what this mystery animal might be? Anyone got any ideas before I give you another clue? You mentioned the sea. Was that on purpose? You said puts, or was that just to put us off? No. Is it okay. a bird? Is it a it's man? not a bird. It's not a bird. I'll give you another clue, okay? So we told you the sound it makes. I also said they swallow stones and that the collective noun for them is a congregation. The fourth and final clue, the males average three to four and a half metres long. The females grow to about three metres and there are two different types of this creature, the American one and the Chinese one, but they do have a lot of cousins. So, Duncan, you're going for it. What do you reckon? Is it some kind of lizard? Well, lizards, it's the right kind of class. It's the right group of animals. Kind of reptile. They are reptile. It's a kind of reptile. Um, I did not get this. I was was blown away. The answer is okay because you're on the right lines, but it's an alligator. Oh, extraordinary, it isn't it? Sound. So, and the only reason now one of our colleagues got it is because he happens to be an expert on collective nouns and said, "I know what a congregation." <laughs> so they eat stones. <laughs> isn't that amazing? They swallow stones, which scientists think is because they want to weigh themselves down underwater. I mean, because lots of them have been found with stones inside them, and there is a suggestion that they more than just accidentally take stones into their bodies. There's an experiment that's been done to suggest they do voluntarily ingest stones, probably to to drop their density. Now, what's all this, Nadia, about an impossible burger? Because I've been seeing headlines about this. What's the impossible burger, and would you eat one? I would definitely eat one. It's a more sustainable and environmentally friendly way to consume burgers because this burger is pretty much a meat mimic. Um, It tastes like meat and it looks like meat, but it's fully made from plants material. And what's the uh, the difference between um, other meat mimics, what I've been told, is that it has this added hemoglobin. hemoglobin. So, so this burger bleeds? This bur- yes, this burger bleeds. Um, it has the hemoglobin, but not from animals, but from plants. Oh, because so, hemoglobin is the stuff in our red blood cells that carries oxygen around the body. Yes. It? It's got iron in it. So exactly. that, and that's why we like eating red meat, because it's, it's exactly. good for your iron levels. Yep. So, so the hemoglobin that is added in this um, meat mimic, this impossible burger, is to give that iron taste that we associate with meat. But this particular hemoglobin comes from plants. The gene itself comes from plants. Doesn't it come actually, the nodules that you work on? Exactly. Because it comes from soybean, yes. Yeah, because when you cut those across, they do look a reddy colour, don't they? Yes, and, and I asked a plant scientist this, and they said, yes, that's this leg haemoglobin molecule mm-hmm. because the bacteria are, exactly. are actually very metabolically active mm-hmm. and they're using a lot, of, a lot of this stuff in order yep. to maintain a high metabolism. So it functions the same way as the haemoglobin in our blood, which is to carry oxygen. But in... so. In nodules, so when the bacteria is fixing nitrogen, it doesn't like to have a lot of oxygen. So what it does is this leg hemoglobin, which makes the nodules very pink, is that to 
get the oxygen away from those bacteria that are fixing yeah, nitrogen. To keep it away from the reaction that needs to exactly. fix the nitrogen. Yep. And so the the impossible burger makers are using this. So you can yep. say it's genuinely vegan, but it's yep. a good way of having iron in the in this yes, plant based burger. Yeah. Uh, have you tried one? Are they any good? I I haven't tried one, but I had friends who actually already tried one yeah. and she said that if no one told her that's made from plants she wouldn't even know no idea that's brilliant now Livia this is certainly one for you we've got this question from Jim what are the best materials to build a house out of for minimal energy wastage so basically with an eye on your wallet and not having to waste energy on overheating a house or overcooling a house what's the best building material for a house So typically it's used mineral wool, which is a type of material that can trap a little bit of air inside and it's very good for insulation of the house. I just came back from a bio-based conference and they were talking about straws as well to be used as insulating material and they they seem to be very, very good. This is like bales of straw. Yeah. yeah. Because I have seen on grand designs, but one's always sceptical about what you see on grand design, (laughs) people building houses out of straw because we know what happened to the little pigs who built a house out of straw but this is this is a a good material yeah yeah it's a good material there is a lot of research being done right now to do it it's a bio-based material so the carbon footprint is great and on top of it there is a very cool material as well that is just air bubbles around the house that can work for insulation as well hang on a minute so you're saying live in a bubble (laughs) <laughs> to put the bubble in the, the wall oh, very okay, faint, right. so, but not very good for so a wallet. So it's like bubble no. wrapping your house, though. Do you put an air bubble, like a bubble wrap, yep. in, in the cavity between the inside and the outside? Yeah. But yep. we already do that, don't we? Don't we? Don't we fill those cavities with an expanding foam or something which is doing sort of that? that that's another possibility. That's what we call polyurethane um, yep. that could expand and fill. So basically we're talking about having more air around the house and um, decreasing the thermal conductivity. So to, to decrease the heat loss, that's the general idea around it. And have people like yourselves interested in the materials we're going to use of tomorrow and, and having an eye on the carbon footprint? Has anyone done the sort of calculation to work out what the best way to build a house is now in terms of what sorts of materials to use in what sorts of proportions do we do we know are people actively working on this Uh, that's the key question isn't it yes there is a lot of people working on it what i would say from now is it depends from place to place because it depends which which are the demands in each place that you build and what are the products around to build the house as well. So it's um, not going to be a generic answer that a house that's good at staying warm in winter is not going to be the same as a house that stays cold in summer. There are going to be differences and we're going to have to find out how yeah, best to do that. Then. Place to place, yes, you think in different places. There is no general answer to that. Now, Peter, Katie has got this question for you because she's, she's worried about voice assistance and that kind of thing. I am a little bit. Are smart assistants always listening and where do they send the data so in principle we're told is that the smart devices are just listening for the so-called wake word which could be siri or okay google or alexa or amazon etc and that's that you can prove that in fact if you switch off the wi-fi or the wi-fi is off you'll find that it says wakes up the device and goes mm, what do i do now so this is because there isn't enough processing power, no capability, space capability to actually do the analysis inside the device. So once woken, it will then connect itself to servers somewhere, you know, Amazon servers, Apple servers, whatever, which will take the data, work out what you're trying to say, and then work out what the answer is. So in, in principle, certainly, I'm pretty confident that in general, once it, only when it's woken will it talk to the servers. 
However, there is evidence, and it came out a few months ago, that some of the data that is recorded and listened to after it's woken up, I tend to believe that they're not transferring or listening to the data the whole time. So in principle, yes, I would trust them that they're not listening the whole time. It's probably more than their business is worth also for that to happen, isn't it? Thanks very much. Duncan, this one's come in for you from Ali, who says, what is the science behind differences in pain threshold? Is it fixed in a person or is it something that we can learn? We can make things more or less painful. It's an interesting question from a kind of basic science perspective but also from a clinical perspective, because, of course, one of the big challenges in medicine is trying to manage people's pain. And it's very difficult because, ultimately, there's no way of knowing how much pain a participant or a subject or a, a, a patient in a hospital is in. And so it's very hard to know how much medication they should be given. So there's lots of variability in how sensitive different people are to pain. And one of the big sources of variability is genetic. So the way that this is studied in the lab is they will use something like a heat sensor or cold presser to create a kind of painful sensation. And we know that variability in heat pain sensitivity, about 26 to 32% of that can be attributed to underlying genetic differences. But it's as much as 60% for variability in cold presser pain. And what are those genes actually doing to make, say, you feel a lot more pain for the same stimulus than, than me? Those genes could be doing various different things. There's a kind of long pipeline going from the affector, so when you um, receive the sensation of the pain, it kind of travels up either to the core, then all the way to the brain, back out again. And there are multiple steps at which those genes could be coding for different types of receptor. They could be coding for different types of transmitter. Or they could be involved in higher level neurobiological systems. One source of variability that we know about is that there are areas of the cortex, so the outer layer of the brain that's usually we think of as being responsible for the higher order cognitive skills. So areas of the frontal lobe, like the insula, which is kind of just behind your eyes, um, and also som somatosensory cortex, we know that variability in the extent to which people can upregulate those areas seems to be involved in their ability to regulate pain. So it's a bit like height then, in the sense that there are loads and loads of genes that probably determine how tall you get, but it's not going to be down to one gene alone. Exactly. So the way that we work out these percentages, one way that they do it is with twin studies. So if you get identical twins and non-identical twins, then you know, roughly speaking, how much shared genetic material those participants have. And from that, you can calculate what proportion of the variability is genetic. But of course, it doesn't tell you which genes it is or how many genes it is. There are different types of pain sensation, and they seem to have different types of genetic susceptibility. And that implies that there are underlying the system sort of physiologically distinct different pain systems some of them might be more genetic than others and so for instance gender is an important predictor of pain so people who are male have slightly higher pain tolerances than female but it's about eight percent for heat pain but much larger for cold presser pain the fact that variability in the extent to which you can operate these higher order almost cognitive areas of the brain the fact that that will modulate your pain sensation implies that it is to some degree trainable. And we know that there are all sorts of different interventions like practicing meditation, for example, and people who are experts in meditating do claim that it helps them to moderate their experience of pain. And so, for instance, there are people who practice different types of meditation prior to childbirth. Well, on that soothing note, we will leave it there. Duncan Astle, thank you very much. And thank you to our other guests this week who are Nadia Radsman, Peter Cowley and Livia Souza.
Katie Haler put the programme together. Do be sure to join us at the same time next week when we're going to put materials under the microscope because we're going to be drilling down into the details of dental implants and unlocking the science of hip replacements as well as getting under your skin. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University and it's supported by the EPSRC and Rolls-Royce. I'm Chris Smith. Thanks for listening and until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.